Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Well, Justin, if that's really the way you feel... It's kind of strangely devoid of any fun, and the end is just stupid. No, no, let's be reasonable here. I really wish I'd not seen that end part, because now it's all a bit shit. Look, is, is there anything that I can say that will change your mind? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't really want to say, because there's so many distractions that I might find I'm yeah. signed up to something, so I... I I'd probably best to say no. Okay, well, if if you're going to be on your way, then I guess I'll just have to say goodbye. We can shake hands, part friends. Yeah, that's not a problem. You need time to do stuff anyway. Yeah. Um, yes, it does definitely feel like it's an autumn day, or certainly moving towards it. So yeah. Um... <laughs> goodbye. Ah, oh, Ian, we have a problem. Oh, really? Do tell. Well, Justin says that he's sick and tired of us uh, taking samples of his voice when he's not here and just using them out of context. So he's decided to leave the podcast. Wait a second, hang on. Wait. Uh, yeah, it's shit now and everyone's douchebag. Justin, don't just hurl abuse through the door. If you've got something to say, let's come in and say it all together. Uh, I'm sure Ian has a few things that he'd like to uh, discuss with you before this drastic action, don't you, Ian? Yes, what about that money you owe me? Mm, I, can't, I haven't got any money, I'm not buying anything. And then and then it just escalates. By the time I'm getting an Xbox 360, I'm currently, as I am, just like, Games! <laughs> I love me games! <laughs> um... Oh well, uh, he might be off, but uh, I have some news that will cheer you up. So um, instead of gentlemen, we have a problem. We have gentlemen, good news. Uh, I am delighted to inform you that Twin Peaks is returning to television for the first time in 20 years. And this time, everything will be answered and resolved. Isn't he so excited? I'm so excited. Are you excited? Uh, well, I, as a Twin Peaks fan, I can tell you it's 25 years. Because, of course, when they uh, announced it, they released a little bit of video which uh, reminded us that back in the day, Laura Palmer told us all she'd see us in 25 years. Um, and they planned that all along. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. It's like, I mean, the thing about it is, you know, it's like, hmm, I think I can busk this 
Just give me 25 years to prepare. And by prepare, I mean think about, well, say I definitely don't want to do it, say it's definitely over, saying it is what it is, saying that, you know, running out of money, thinking about it a bit, and then eventually, 24 and a half years later, going, oh, go on then, like that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it, it, well, it's just... Yeah. In context, the line about seeing 25 years later was because at one point, whilst Del Cooper's going through the lodge, he sees himself old. So the implication was he'd be trapped in the lodge for a very long time, wasn't it? Oh, what are we doing trying to make sense of Twin Peaks, Leo? Uh, yes, exactly. Um, make sense again. Stop trying to do it, Ian. Okay, well, um, to tone down my enthusiasm slightly, uh, I'll watch it. Uh, of course I will. Uh, maybe I will get some closure. I think it's a little late. I, I think it's very hard to put the band back together and do it in such a way that you don't become a pastiche of yourself and what Twin Peaks was like back then. You know, yeah. the iron is definitely not hot. But if it rounds everything up and the 25 years conceit is reasonably amusing, I must admit, um, then I suppose we'll just have to give it a go and we'll have a good moan about it afterwards. Anyway, but still, that's fans for you. They're never happy, are they, Leo? No, and that, I mean indeed, this is what it. This is what we we uh, talking about this week. Uh, just so to put the conversation in some sort of context. Fa- well, it's not just fans are never happy. We wouldn't obviously do a podcast unless that was the part of a, some kind of debate on which the floor would be like you know that this house proposes that fans are never happy. And then we have arguments on both sides. We're kind of going to do that, but in a more sort of round tabley way. And what we're going to say is, you know, what we're going to ask the question. What obligation does a creator of a thing have if that thing becomes enormously uh, popular and a phenomenon and then people kind of expect stuff out of that thing? Those people are the fans. Do, do people mess with their fans at their own risk or are certain fans, you know, they'll just take anything as long as they've got the thing that they've got? I, um, I think it's, it, it's, it's a complex <clears throat> and multifaceted subject. It depends an awful lot on, on what the format of your, we're assuming TV show for the moment, I think, but anything, I suppose, is going out on. If it's something on a mainstream network channel, you have a responsibility, I'd say, as a showmaker, to always try and reach the broadest audience you possibly can. If you're on a subscription cable channel, people are generally watching because they're already, you know, there's a barrier to entry to watching anyway. Your audience is going to be smaller, but they're paying. So you can, I think you can handle them a bit more as well. There's also also the conflicting responsibilities of, you know, sticking to your intention of where you wanted to go with things, whilst also responding to what the audience really pick up on and going, oh, they like this, so I'll give them more of that. And that's not selling out. There is an element of showmanship to these things, and you you kind of have to give the audience a little bit of what they want. But it's it's where does the where does Mr. Casual Viewer end and Mr. I'm a fan begin? Yes, I think that's uh, that's a fair point. I mean, Twin Peaks is an interesting case uh, in this household because, of course, I was a massive Twin Peaks fan at the time. And the experience of Twin Peaks has actually shaped my entire creative life uh, on the basis that I was aware at the time of what a crushing disappointment the end was. You know, the more, the further out in time I got, and they didn't take very far at all, you just couldn't put it together in your head. 
And like with something like Lost Highway, I watched Lost Highway because, you know, I'm trying to find themes in the works of the, you know, of the artist, in this case, David Lynch. And with Lost Highway, I can accept that that makes no sense uh, on the basis that, well, well, that's kind of, you know, what he intended, really. It's it's like he famously, when somebody asked him, the house in Lost Highway, does it exist inside or outside of reality? His answer was, sort of. And that's, that's, you know, I can accept that because that's, David Lynch, but there was another force in Twin Peaks, which was Mark Frost. And I think Mark Frost was more, I'm feeling my way towards some kind of supernaturally thing. I'm kind of making it up as I go along, but I'm trying to get somewhere. And it was that, it was the complete, oh no, I'll just draw a line under it and walk away. It shaped the fact that I would never, uh, I mean, you know, I have, uh, not famously, uh, but uh, in actuality, in reality, written three books in a series of 12, which would then dovetail into a series of 12 book seasons, which which is a thing that would make a big story. And then I realised that I can't make audiobooks or shouldn't make audiobooks of something which I would have to pretend to be lots of random American people. And really, should I be, you know... Uh, trying to make a mark as an author, uh, doing pastiches of American cop shows when I've never been further than the Canary Islands in my entire life. So I've, I've certainly really, ne- I've never been to actual America. I've never actually seen it. So there's no reality. It's all based on my experience of watching lots and lots of cop shows. And is that really where you want to start? Well, it's not. Um, but I'm so sensitive to the idea that people might read those three books and go, what the devil was all that about? Because there wasn't, you know, any explanation because it's the first three of this mega saga, which I should point out for those people who are like, yeah, well, you know, George R. R. Martin can't even write eight books. So, you know, where were you? I should point out that every volume was intended to be only 50,000 words long. So, you know, about four of these would make one Game of Thrones. So it's not as big as it sounds. But the thing about it was I was so concerned that people might feel lost and alone if I just went, no, I have to down tools on that and walk away, which is what I did, that it was all based upon uh, a role-playing game, which I wrote, which is available, which explains everything. If you're that bothered, go and pick up the role-playing game and read all of that, and it'll explain exactly what was going on and what was happening, and it'll tell you everything, because there is a whole narrative there, a whole plot arc. The spoilers are all there. In fact, the, the 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 game says, don't read anything about this bit if you don't want spoilers for the game. You know, it's the, the, spoilers are important, but it, this could be spoiled. You could just go and pick up this thing. It's available as a free PDF, you know, and just read it and go, oh, so that's what was going on. Thanks. I feel satisfied and away I walk. There is no such thing with Twin Peaks. Even the creators like, I don't know, we never got to finish it. Uh, just kind of left it. Um, you know, they were determined that nobody would ever find out who killed Laura Palmer until the network went, oh, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah. People want to know. They may possibly burn the studio down if you don't just tell them. So, yeah, you know. Well, I think we're, we're heading into the related topic of story arcs and the responsibility for finishing off your arc. And if you get cut short, at least, you know, putting a full stop on events so that some people can have a sense of closure about things. Although many a show has in fact become famous post mortem because of so unresolved. Um, yes, 
I am currently uh, as a, I am watching Lost as a museum piece. I still don't know what happens at the end, and I'm just about halfway through at the moment. And I'm, you know, when you look at everything in the regards of, well, how did they ever think they were going to fix that? Blah blah blah. You know, just just spam everyone with uh, crazy plot revelations. Um, when you can't even answer some of the more simple questions that stick out. It's just like, yeah, I can see this might be a bit of a train wreck in the end. Don't know yet. Haven't watched it. So uh, I'm, I'm watching with some interest. Uh, what's interesting about it on another level is that I can see it, it didn't just have fans because of all the crazy mystery stuff. It did actually have some good bits in it as well. Um, and and sometimes, you know, miniature arcs did get resolved. Um, so, you know, I mean, I can't say that it doesn't. Because uh, I have to say that the same sources that have been quite angry about the end of Lost are the people that told me that they had polar bears in the pilot and then they never came up again, which is a complete lie. No, that is a lie. I, even I know that one. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's just like, yes, yeah, it, it signals a fan who is so angry that they're just going to just right, throw the baby out with the bathwater. So, you know, that's... Uh, yeah, it, it's a fairly... You can tell when someone's like gone over the boil. When, you know, they're criticising something and, you know, there are no legitimate reasons for criticising this, but that's not enough. Everything they do is wrong. But uh, fans passionate, as they say... Um, to I know I think we need, we need to sort of break this down a bit the whole kind of fan viewer dichotomy because I feel this is where a lot of it lies. I am a fan of a show which has of course has a very <clears throat> passionate following which is Doctor Who. I may have mentioned this in the past. I can't quite remember. Uh, and of course this this has some of the most rabid fans ever. There's still a core of people who detest the new series and declare that it doesn't count. Um, and you know. Sometimes it can be argued that Stephen Moffat does a few things from time to time kind of to deliberately troll the fans, uh, as much as he also does puts in little little flourishes that only we would spot. Um, and I think because it is a network program, uh, Doctor Who should always strive to be popularist and get the kids in. And uh, frankly, uh, us fans will just model along because we're there for the journey at this stage, let's be honest. Uh, and, you know, if you put fans in charge of a story process what you end up with i find is generally a lot of very derivative storylines that spring out of the existing continuity you don't it's very hard to get new things in when the fans are in the driving seat gives you what i mean uh and so to that extent i'm like um no don't ask me my opinion about doctor who it's, it's one of the worst perspectives you could have uh I, in many ways I'm, I'm sad I just can't sit down and watch Doctor Who like an eight-year-old. Instead, I have this, you know, 50 years worth of knowledge baggage every time I collide with an episode. It takes me two viewings before I settle down and formulate a correct opinion, I find. Uh, how are you... Well, well sorry, how, what were you going to say to me? No, no, you carry on. No, I was going to say, I mean, I, I think that there's a... What, what, that, what you're uh, noticing there is that um, if... In order for fans to become in control of the thing which they are a fan of, it requires a certain combination of elements. And I think the e the path of least resistance from the point of view of the people who, <coughs> quote unquote, own that thing, it is 
that they really don't care about it that much. That's the easiest way that, that they could allow fans to take the thing that they've created as their own and sort of relinquish their own control on it, is that eh, they simply don't give us stuff. Uh, I, the thing that springs instantly to mind is the television network that owned Gossip Girl um, licensed that to Amazon's fan fiction project. I have no idea how Amazon's fan fiction project is going at the moment, but essentially it's like Amazon went, well, we're going to do official licensed fan fiction, and we've got the rights for people to write stories in the universe of Gossip Girl! And everyone went, uh-huh. Yeah, because it was like, well, what? I mean, I don't think, I mean, the point is, right, Gossip Girl was something that for some reasons, people who really like that really, really, really like it to the point where they tell everyone else to watch it. And, you know, I can, I don't like it, but then that's not a surprise. I'm a dude. I don't suppose I'm really the target audience. What is surprising is that Sue can't even watch it as brain wallpaper. She finds it intensely irritating and she's more the target demographic. And she loves, you know, Sex in the City and Tu Wong Fu. And she likes things that I don't like because, hey, she's a girl. And she has, like, you know, she likes some girly things. You know? She's a big fan of, like, The Princess Diaries and The Devil Wears Prada and all of these things. And she watched that. She was like, no, that's, what the hell is that? You know? So, obviously, I think what happened there was, like, we we're at the point with this where we really just don't care. Um, and then the kind of fans who make a name for themselves by glomming onto that thing that even the creator doesn't really care that strongly about, and then they kind of want to carve out their position as the top of the hill, is that the mechanism of, of like sort of that kind of rabid fandom is to prove how much of a fan you are, and that's why it becomes stale. So what you should really be doing is... Uh, vetting things a little bit more uh, if you're the creator and so we're not just going to let anything through and then uh, you know if you were really rigorous about it you might find those fans who are like well I like this but I'm not going to be a slave to it I want to play with the concept and those fans generally don't get to be in control of official things because because the other people are beating them away and they go look I'm not that bothered you carry on have fun in your circuit. And that's why this is the experience comes up is because uh, it's a perfect storm for attracting terribly conservative, reactionary, closed loop sort of stuff. It's not inevitable. It's just that the path of least resistance would tend to suggest that the, you know, the kind of fans taking the kind of creation that would end up in that scenario is going to create terribleness. So I wouldn't necessarily say well, that, you know, I don't think you're that kind of Doctor Who fan. Uh, no, I'm not, because uh, I, I, I'm... I'm a... <sighs> Like I say, I'm a sort of self-aware misanthrope. I'm, I'm aware that you know, I feel I feel sorry for actors. Occasionally, I bump into them, and I would and like this, this guy's a Doctor Who fan, and I would feel sorry for them because I'm sure in their heads they're looking at me, going, "Oh God, God, he's one of those. He's a level ten shit." Um, two two little um, little comparison here. Babylon Five. Uh, J. Michael Jasinski, the creator and primary writer of Babylon Five, when he was making that show, he had a massive engagement with the online community whilst he was doing it and frequently commented and responding to comments and threads on, I think it was the 
the news net, whatever the thing they had back in those days in the 90s. Uh, and his general feelings at the end of all that was, I wish I hadn't gone to that level of engagement with, with, with the fans. And to juxtapose this, Doctor Who, Doctor Who is run by Doctor Who fans. When Doctor Who was cancelled, the fans took it over, and in other mediums it was continued to be published, and certain authors played with ideas, and when the series came back, those ideas were put up on screen. Russell T. Davis, Stephen Moffat, all these guys, they, they are writers, but they, they came into this as Doctor Who fans, and they have been since childhood. Huge fans! Capaldi is a huge fan! Um, now, when Russell T. Davis took over, he had a big thing about we need to disengage from fandom. Uh, in terms of the, you know, the communication that goes on. We'll, we'll, we'll still do, we'll put up things in Doctor Who magazines and give interviews and things like that, but we're no longer going to have this conversation with the guy on the street as, as a sort of ongoing thing. And part of that was he shut down the official Doctor Who online forum. The BBC used to run it. Gone. I say, brilliant decision. The, the fans can go off on their own little private forums and they can whittle and moan about things as much as they like but there's there's no way can they go up and bang on the door and lay down their demands on anything regarding an official bbc website uh regarding dr I, I think that is entirely correct there should be a level of disengagement they need to get on with their job and they should have the skills to be doing it and look at what they're doing objectively and, and just move on with it does that make any sense to you yeah totally i mean i think that there's a, a point at which um, fan fiction is some, somewhat difficult to me as a concept uh, m- because many of the things that people write fan fiction are about, I'm like, well, I've written enough of my own. Not that I'm trying to be mean. I think it's good. I think all things like that are good. But there's a certain point at which you're like, well, what do you expect to get out of it? There's there's very little fan fiction that's like the, the, the sort of, this is the, the holy grail of, of fan fiction. In fact, most fan fiction is is not seen no. that at all. Uh, um, well, I think it's it's you know it's it's my first little pony. Uh, when when someone feels an inkling for have a bit of a writing thing, doing your Mary Sue set in an existing franchise universe is the entry level drug to get you in there. And but I cannot believe that every. I mean, it's really difficult to tell. I mean, a lot of fan fiction comes down to somebody who goes, "Hey, I could write the best X." story ever and then they get 250 words in and go wow writing is hard and then they abandon it oh yeah uh, and so you get 250 words of a story and people go oh yeah, yeah that looks like it might be good write more and i go i ran out of ideas 250 words who knew um and that kind of thing so well, you know. usually with fan fiction it's normally centered on particular characters they're in love with or unusual romantic pairings that aren't necessarily in the tv show you know well, it, it's, it's actually get a plot well, on a story my goodness that's level <clears> two I'm staying, I'm staying out of that whole thing. Cause yeah, I mean, there's things I really, I can't understand why you would want fan fiction of it, uh, apart from the obvious. Um, and I think that's one of the problems. I mean, Supernatural has always been very nudge, nudge, wink, wink about its own relationship with its fans to the extent that it writes into the episode, the character, uh, it works in the fact that there are, there is a community of fans who follow the adventures of the Winchesters and then have the Winchesters read some of it and react to that whole stuff. It's like, and, and just like with the horror that you might expect yes. from those real characters really having to confront what other people are doing with them as kind of uh, semi-public property. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I, 
that's the bit I don't understand. It's like, one, why would I, if even if I wrote like a perfectly acceptable, you know, I say, oh, well, this is canon. Well, this is within the canon. This fits, you know, in between this season and that season or during this period of time. And this is just something that happened. And it's perfectly acceptable. It's like, yeah, but it didn't, did it? It's not cat. Nobody's ever going to go, oh, remember that when that random guy wrote that episode that was in there? It was a really good episode, but it didn't happen because it's not quote-unquote official, yeah? So there's that barrier, is that there's no incentive for someone to write a quality fan fiction for something they don't own or control, because if it's... This is the thing, it would almost be heartbreaking if it was really good, and we've seen this, he said, segueing out of one fandom and into another, where... where Disney just went, hey, all this stuff that was uh, canon in the Star Wars universe, cut it loose. Bye yep. bye. Yep. And, and people weren't wringing their hands over all the stuff they hated. They were like, those few gems, <laughs> those few things that people produced that really enriched the universe. Why have you cast them into outer darkness and there was wailing and there was gnashing of teeth? You know what I mean? It's like, that's, that's the thing. All that you're really buying yourself, uh, by that kind of shenanigans is like heartbreak because people are like, I wish that was part of the, the full story, but, but I have to accept the fact well, that it in fact is not. It, it wasn't just, I mean, Star Wars is kind of a special case. It wasn't because they actually have a grading system for canon, so, um, uh, there was always an official position on how 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 canon is a book. Um, I think it's because there's so much tie-in media. It's not just there were some novels. It was a case of those novels and the backgrounds of those novels were also available as role-playing supplements, also were involved in video games. So there was kind of a network of the expanded universe, and that's all been a throw. And that's the sense of betrayal that they were selling them this stuff, and now it's like, oh, it doesn't count. Incidentally, I believe that's entirely the, entirely the correct decision for Disney to do. Clear the boards and approach a sequel to the original trilogy with a, with a clean slate and make up what they want to do with the stories as opposed to having to try and negotiate. My goodness, well, let's be honest here, an awful lot of pumped-out crap. There's some gems in there, I don't deny some gems in there. Better than, you know, most Star Wars films. But, sorry, we, we just got to clear the board here to get things moving on again. And besides which... Who, you know, I can I can talk about the Thrawn trilogy of books all I like. Most of the general public haven't even heard of them, so why does it matter? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's, it's like uh, I mean, it's when you come across a situation like that where the uh, extended materials uh, surrounding something have taken on a, a very real life of their own, and and you know, Star Wars and Star Trek fans are going to be the ones that really you know plug away at this. I mean, this is one of the interesting things about uh, the uh, the Firefly in the room is that, to my knowledge. The extended Firefly universe extends to a few official graphic novels. And by a few, I just mean a, a finite number that wouldn't be hard to keep track of in your mother's basement. You know, it, it's not loads. It's a few that are all, you know, had input from the Whedon himself. Uh, plus, you know, various things like knitted caps and and props and whatnot and and you know that and a role I, playing. Yeah, there's a role playing game and I believe there's also a video game as well. 
Is there? Oh yes, there's a video game coming that has voices from the original cast. But there's also a board game which I recently played. In fact, I was playing it. I think this time last week. Uh, I think it was this time last week. It might have been this time last Friday. But anyway, whenever I played it recently, and there's a board game. So you know. Uh, so we've got things. There are things. But it's nothing like the Star Wars Extended Universe. And, and given the, the relative vocalness, I mean, this is the same sort of level as Farscape, where they actually brought it back for the TV movie precisely because people were so loud about you can't just stop it there and you promised them a fifth season and blah, 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 and they gave them the television movie. And away the Farscape fans went. And there were a few graphic novels, again, Exactly the same. I believe there was a video game at the time. Uh, nobody really talks about that. No. Um, there isn't a board game. There is a role-playing game. Uh, but it kind of is very quite extended universes aren't what they used to be. Well, I think with Farscape, I mean, if we hadn't had the Peacekeeper Wars miniseries to tie things up, I think it would probably be a bit more of an intense rumble in the background than we have now. The thing is, in many ways, the responsibility they had with those of, of that reprieve of, of that miniseries... Uh, of just resolving pretty much everything as quickly as they could, um, some things rushed, some things not so bad, uh, gave everyone kind of the closure they needed. There's been some comic books set post uh, Peacekeeper Wars. There's rum- rumblings of a movie in the future. Yes. But, but by and large, because the plotline has been developed, because all the characters reached a point where they can go, this is their end point now, and they reached a safe, comfortable spot. There's no hunger for it. It is a, it is a sated appetite. And I think that's one thing that keeps coming up over and over again uh, in the, the thesis of the 80s kids' journey, is that happy fans make least noise and therefore appear not to exist. I mean, it, you know, merely by the fact that SG-1 has 213 episodes and Atlantis has... Uh, about a hundred. I mean, you know, there's 300 episodes of Stargate stuff, and then there's Universe, which uh, seems to be the series, at least from my fandom perspective, I just pretend it doesn't happen because it's nothing like the rest of it, and therefore the, the you know, and it takes place at a place in a it's like some sort of weird, grim, dark 90s reimagining. Like a, it's like a reboot, just while things are still happening. And Stargate fans, when you ferret them out, go, yeah, I wasn't keen on that, due to the fact that it's nothing like the rest of it. Whereas what everybody else was saying, which was like, oh, God, I can't stand that Stargate thing. It's just the same things over and over again, rewarmed, rehashed, recut up, and then put out in a different way. When I watch that, I'm like, yeah, I'm happy with this. This is my thing that I like, and I'm going to continue watching this. And in fact, so many other people thought that, that uh, Stargate SG-1 uh, is still, at this point, the longest-running science fiction continuously running science fiction series of all time. Uh, I was saving you the trouble of clearing your throat there. Um, I still am going to clear my throat. Thank you very much. (laughs) 26 years of Doctor Who, thank you very much. Well, yeah, no, no, I said continuously running. Um, Like, it did just did 10 seasons on the trot. Uh, Of course. Doctor Who did 26, so quick mathematical check here. Yep, Doctor Who wins. No, no, but I'm saying continuous. Continuous, yes. Doctor Who oh, right. continuous. It's on 26 years, but didn't they only make like eight episodes a season or something? Stargate only has about 22, 24 episodes a season? Yes. Well, 
Doctor Who had like 26 episodes a season as well, I think, didn't it? So 26? Yeah, 26, like half our episodes, which build into like six stories a year in serials. It's splitting when hairs. When yeah. did it start with that? Oh, um, let's see now. Oh, this is a diversion, which I may edit out. Um, in the 60s, it was just an ongoing serial that was pretty much on all year, but stopped for the summer. Uh, in the 70s, it became 26 half-hour episodes a year in colour, and that persisted until 1986, where it became 14 episodes a year. And these episodes be broken down into serials, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I knew that. Yeah, I knew it was serials. I didn't realise it was quite that many per season, because right at the beginning, it wasn't that many. And British oh, yeah. television is kind of noted for not having very long series of things. No, no, it was, it was a, it was a proper ongoing drama. It was the first season was like 48 episodes long. Wow. Okay. Well, fair enough. Well, they made a big fuss about Stargate SG1 in America because it beat the X-Files. And then the week after they beat the X-Files in terms of the number of episodes that there were, they cancelled it. Um, which they <laughs> may in retrospect regret doing because Supernatural isn't showing any signs of slowing down. And the I only. Know. Everyone's going, oh, this, this 10th season's going to be the last. And like, I'm not seeing any press about it being the last. Well, they wanted it to be the last as well. But remember, Kripke already left, what, like, in the fifth season. And then it chuntered on for a long while longer. And I think everybody's, you know, looking at their paycheck and their Winnebago that they've got comfortable in. And, they're, you know, and, and Mark Shepard's like, oh, but I'm only just making the main cast list. And, you know, it's like, yeah, it does seem like there's a few more things that we could do. And the fans are going, yes, please, more. And, it, you know, it, it, yes, it, it's entirely possible. It could bust the bank a second time because uh, the end of season five was supposed to be, you know, the end. And it yes. wasn't. It's, it's now twice as long. In fact, more than twice as long because the third season happened during the writer's strike. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's a, a thing. And again, a supernatural fandom, generally speaking, Wincest aside, very happy fandom. You would barely hear a peep out of them. And, and that's, you know, that's a testament to the, the sort of, uh, I mean, you know, you hear enough people who, oh, I don't watch it. I think it's rubbish. You know, and that's the point. Well, people who don't watch it think it's rubbish. But people who do watch it are like, go away then, it's my show. Well, but Supernaturals has always been a way of, I mean, I, I'm only still muddling my way through series four, but it keeps itself fresh. It's forever moving the storyline onwards. X-Files, meanwhile, gets completely stale. Even when they change the cast, it's still stale as hell. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I've noticed about SG1. I didn't, I, I was a, a series nine and ten denier. Again, I find out because of lies. Like, somebody was like, oh, man, they just come up with something for those last two seasons, and it's just completely out of the blue, and then they tie it all up quickly. Um, and that's not actually the case. It's, it's actually derived from previous things, and it makes some kind of sense how they're running it through. And they're actually, I would say, the last two seasons have a little something that, uh, ironically, the rest of it doesn't. I imagine it's because Ben Browder, uh, he was very involved in the production of Farscape and said, yeah, I'll sign on to do Stargate SG-1, but only as long as I get to be consulted about the kinds of plot lines we're doing and, and the kinds of things that we can do in an episode. And they went, well, we all like Farscape, so you go ahead. And yes, it is true that the last two seasons of 
Stargate SG-1 are not just Farscapey because they have Ben Browder and Claudia Black in them. They're also Farscapey because they feel more like Farscape. Um, there are like dialogue choices and exchanges and just all this stuff happens and you're like, this really reminds me of Farscape more than SG-1 at this, at this point because of the way that you've, that they've taken an idea and, and done something with it and created tensions and, and drama and stuff. It's really odd. Uh, yeah, so yeah, the, the last two seasons of Stargate SG-1 are, are really very Farscapey indeed. But again, I mean, you know, we, we're talking about uh, things now where it's like, I mean, this is the thing. We started off talking about fandoms and we've come all this way into this thing where it's like, and creators have completely disengaged from enormous fandoms. Or at least the fandom itself seems to have actively tried to, you know, I think people who write Winchester fan fiction for the, for Supernatural themselves keep away from, they go, oh yeah, but there's the series and then there's what I do. They do that. They never confuse the two themselves. They go, yes, here's this bit that is mine and I, my fandom and I keep it myself but then there's the official thing which is glorious and wonderful and even i should not infect it with my touch which is like the complete reverse of the the fans of star trek who when voyager said we are now accepting fan submissions went great i'll get to my word processor then i think if supernatural did the same thing the fans would be like i don't want no no <laughs> don't take it away i'm not touching it I'm not actually going to submit to the show. It'd be worth, worth researching just how many. I mean, there's a, I'm sure there's a list somewhere on a wiki of Star Trek uh, franchise episodes that were inspired by a fan suggestion or was based on a fan submission, and seeing just what those are and just how, you know, what was the hit rate for those? Because I imagine there was an awful, it was a, quite a lot of work because a lot of dross you'd have to wade through, continuity well, heavy. Well, um, well, as a Doctor Who uh, writer once coined. Yeah, well, I right. I think that the key facts I know is it's common knowledge that with Voyager, they and this is the, exactly that thing of I don't think that um, the television uh, station really cared that much about the property when they gave it over to this idea, although they did try and monitor it a wee bit, and I mean that a lot, a very small amount. When they said, yeah, Voyager will accept fan submissions. And some of those scripts with small tweaks are fan submissions. And one of the big things that uh, people point to which annoyed them is things like in the first episode, which obviously wasn't a fan submission, the writers cleverly seeded all this stuff about, you know, it being a journey of attrition where they were going to run out of stuff. And then they never did because, the repli- you know, the... um you know, the replicator things made all of the their food for them. And they were perfectly comfortable and happy on an incredibly long journey back somewhere. But it was kind of like an incredibly long journey on a cruise ship where you could get mint tea whenever you wanted it and not Lord of the Flies, which is kind of, I think, what the original writing team kind of pictured it being. And when the studio weighed in, they went, who cares? They just want Star Trekky type stuff. And so it settled down to become seven seasons of Star Trekky type stuff as opposed to an actual thing. But yes, I don't know the specific episode. I mean, you could probably guess by looking at it, but yes, there must be a list somewhere of things that were fan 
script. Yeah, sometimes they're a bit odd, like the episode where Q turns up and they all go off and be Robin Hood in the woods in a holodeck, well, whatever, malfunction. That's the next generation, but that was a fan submission, and that one's a fan submission. Oh, right, okay, then. I things like that. that. The things where there's yeah. a, a girl who was a daughter of two of two Q editors that would get all Q stories all of a sudden occur to me. The daughter of two Q editors turns up and Q turns up to take her into the consumer. That was a, that was a fan submission. They're out there. They're out there. Um, just to put in a quote here, to change tack completely, the Fantastic Four is a, um, the upcoming Fantastic Four movie has in, in, has endured much resentment from the fans before it has appeared. And I'm going to read out a quote here. Uh, this is, uh, from Mike Teller who's playing, uh, Reeve Richards. Uh, talking about the fan, negative fan reaction. I already know that people hate me for the fact I'm playing Reed Richards and we're ruining their franchise. It's tough because when you're taking on a franchise that's already been established, you do kind of owe something to the characters and to the creator. At the same time, you want to bring it to a fresh audience. My dad grew up with the Fantastic Four comic books and not a lot of kids did. So you also want to make a movie that they can enjoy. I will say that this film we made is not really for little kids. I don't think so. We do take a more mature approach. Well, basically, he's just kind of going, it's tough, but I'm doing my thing. I'm doing my thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, this is one of the things where they've walked into a real problem. And I think... This isn't going to be a franchise. I, I mean, you know, you're an actor. You've got a job. You know that, hey, comic book movies are so hot right now. Uh, Chronicle, which Max Landis wrote before, did pretty good. Um, and the director is the said Josh Trank directed that. So you kind of, I think, you know, when it comes to uh, food on the table and having a career, you tend to look at all those positive things. And... I think what fans, not just fans, that's the thing. Uh, what it is to be a comic book movie fan in this in this golden era, unless you're one of the ones who hates everything, in which case, oh, bad luck for you. But, um, yeah, I mean, the thing about it is that Robert Downey Jr. does Iron Man, and that's it, folks. You know, everybody's happy to run with that. You know, from that point on, things become solidified. Um, I, I, I do think that Edward Norton doing the Hulk was a bit underrated. I think that kind of was a... I, I, as a Hulk fan, I really enjoyed that movie. But hey, I'm a, uh, in a very small minority on that one, so I'll, I'll leave it be. But certainly I think it gave Marvel some confidence when it came to Thor and Captain America that people, you know, they went, well, let's just go with this. Let's mine it out. Let's turn that... You know, Iron Man is pretty much in the vein of Iron Man in the comics. In fact, there was a point in which they said, well, yeah, you know, Robert Downey Jr., that's what we were always going for. But unfortunately, we, until we saw Robert Downey Jr., we didn't really know that's what we were going for, <laughs> so we didn't do it right. So the, the entire history of Iron Man is like, we're trying to get this, like, Robert Downey Jr.-ness in it, but they didn't realise that until Robert Downey Jr. actually played it. And they went, oh, yeah, that's it, that's Iron Man right there. Yeah, just like that. That's what we've been trying to draw. Well, I think I think Robert Downey Jr. also had the advantage of coming in with a no, without there being any particularly strong, strongly established Iron Man before him, other than the character from the he was he was a, he was a major character in the comic book series. But he oh didn't no, no, 
Yeah, then that's fine. I mean, I'm not having to go about, I'm just saying, he came in and marveled themselves with that's what it is and everybody loved it. And so when they went on to do Thor and Captain America, Marvel went, let's have a bit more confidence and try and push and try and make people understand what's good about this hero. So in Thor, it's like, look at the sheer amount of magical silliness in this franchise. And people are like, yes, I like that amount of uh, magical silliness, and Loki's brilliant. And then you go to um, Captain America, and you go, yeah, you have to understand this is a guy from a time where heroes were heroic, and apple pie was, you know, all good, and all of this stuff. Yeah, so that's what we're doing. Yeah, and 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 they went, oh yeah, okay, cool, right? We can get behind that. So they made that the thing. And so they're going through each character and taking the essence of that character and trying to bring it out on the screen. And you know, it, it doesn't show. And and this is the thing. Marvel proved this summer that they've become a brand. You know, like people went to see Guardians of the Galaxy. I've read one Guardians of the Galaxy comic once, and it was free, and it wasn't very long. And so when I went to see the movie, I was pretty much as fresh as most other people, but they trust Marvel. And again, I believe that Marvel have kind of gone for the essence of what they want Guardians of the Galaxy to be and tried to bring that out like a flavour enhancer. Now, the essence of the Fantastic Four, and I've read a little bit more Fantastic Four than Guardians of the Galaxy, is that they're a family that does kind of Star Trek-y stuff. It's all science adventure. It's all like those episodes of Star Trek where they're caught in the gravitational well of a quasar or whatever it is and weird effects start happening and it's a little bit surreal because of exploring scientific ideas. That's what the Fantastic Four do on Tuesday, yeah? And they hang together as a family and there's like witty banter and there's that. And if Marvel were going to make that movie, they would be like, well, that's what we want to bake in. We want to convince people that a family drama about a brother and a sister and her crazy scientist husband and his best friend living together in a skyscraper and having wacky science adventures in which Reed sort of strokes his chin and builds a machine and uh, we want to convince them that that's fun so how do we do that and that's the problem that they would solve because that's how they approach everything whereas these guys are coming in going how can we yes. get our own take on this yes how can we just completely ignore all of that and just do what we want and that's what the bad reaction is and it doesn't matter how much it's like yeah it's cool and it's fresh it's like what Fantastic Four. I mean, they're going to cancel the Fantastic Four comic. That is gone. Yes. Now, you know, it's like that. And score the policy on Marvel there, I think. Yeah. And and because people aren't buying a Fantastic Four comic. Um, and, and ironically, because people were starting, oh, they're trying to get the rights to Fantastic Four back. And it's like, yeah, but to be fair, and the, the, the circulation figures were like, they would print a Fantastic Four. And then like uh, it was either 71 or 17,000. Not even, a, you know, a million people would buy that. Not even a 100,000 people would buy a copy of that magazine, yeah? So there is no way that that small fan base could undermine a multi-million dollar tentpole movie. However, I could make an argument that all this stinky press over all of everything that has ever been touched by the Fantastic Four, like ever in the history of it in movies, that the movie studios can undermine the comic. That if the movie studio goes out there and shows that lack of confidence in the source material, people stop buying the magazine. It's like, well, if a movie studio can't find anything in the original material that's worth making, obviously the original material is not worth reading, which is actually, I think, probably a lie. 
Yeah. As, as uh, many of the Fantastic Four stories that I've read have been very strong and had some great stuff in them. Uh, but uh, this, the movie studios just aren't confident in it. Uh, I mean, the reverse is happening with the X-Men. People kind of love the X-Men. Um, Marvel is still saying they're going to quote unquote cancel it. But as someone, I was like, yeah, they're cancelling it so that in the big Marvel event that they've hinted at that's coming next year that will change the Marvel Universe forever, they could just put them back in. Yeah. But yeah, I think that the fan reaction, and, and this is the thing that I was saying earlier, which is possibly a good place to move into the latter part of the, the discussion, is that I think that it's got to a point with fandoms, particularly of sci-fi and fantasy, that Regular Joes who go to the cinema don't, they look to fans, but it's not all gravy. If you make something for the fans and the fans go, this is fantastic, don't mean nothing. Because no. a regular Joe still reserves the right to go, well, you might like it, but I'm staying away. Which is why studios like, yeah, we want something that will make that person pay money to go and see our movie. And fan approbation is nice, but it's not, that's obviously not what it is. Because people who are not fans still don't go and see things that fans love. Dread, I'm looking at you. You know? It, it, so, yeah. Th- but the thing about it is that one thing that we still are going to see, I believe, is that if fans really hate something and are vocal about it, regular people look to them and go, well, the fans hate it. It must be rubbish. So they've managed to find something that'll stop people going to the cinema. Yeah, no problem. If fans hate it, people go... I'm not sure. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why Bayformers has taken so long to drop off. Because uh, if we're talking about fandoms, I mean, the, the Transformers fandom, the really hardcore, and I speak as someone who who is knows a Transformers fan, um, they are the saddest and most abused fandom in the history of fandoms. Because people keep just not getting it, messing around with it, producing dross, and up until recently in the West, the fans have gone, yes, but it's the best time. They're a bit like abused wives in this respect. They're like, yes, but I don't deserve anything better. So they pay their money to go and see it, and they don't they don't get down to it. And it's only it's non-fans, people who are like, but this is crap. And it's like, I'm not even a Transformers fan, and it's rubbish. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I'm angry about it, and it's just rubbish. Um, those are the, you know, that's a very weird situation. And I think it was only with this last one that, that, that finally the really core people were like, I'm getting a bit of pride here. I'm not seeing that. And, and people, you know, in the West being led. Uh, the Honest Trailers people did an Honest Trailer of uh, The Last Transformers and the last third of it is voiced over, not by the usual Honest Trailers guy, but by a Chinese voice because it says, like the movie, the last third of this will pander to the Chinese people, where all the men are superheroes and all the women are kung fu action and martial artists, and we're in China for no reason at all, where the Communist Party is super efficient and fantastic, and yeah, and they just gone, you know, what I mean, essentially, it's a sort of satirical way of saying, you know, the reason it's got so much money is because Americans are sick of it, so they've decided to try and shovel their shovelware film 
in China, and they do it with the most blatant pandering you could possibly imagine at the moment. That works because it probably does because people people who are used to being pandered to are a bit bored with people pandering to them. But people who have never been pandered to particularly by a particular thing before quite like the flattery at first. It's not going to last, though. Well, um, get a little bit used to this, though, because China has overtaken America as the world's largest economy. Indeed, I believe the last Iron Man film had special scenes and a cameo inserted into the Chinese release of that movie to yes. uh, localise it, as they say. Yes, it did indeed. Um, and to a certain extent, there's no problem with that. I think people... I mean, there's no problem with... If, if China wants the Transformers franchise, I think that Ooh, America... Have it! Is, it's like... You know what? I wasn't using it anyway. Should we say a tenner? Yeah, brilliant. Yes. Well, well this, this limb was riddled with cancer and gangrene. If you seriously want it, I'll happily hack it off and give it to you. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's fine. But, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think that there will come a point at which... The problem is, for every unsophisticated audience to whom you can pander, you can find, within ten years, once you've pandered to them quite a lot they become more sophisticated and stop responding to pandering rubbish. I mean, that's what happens, because the point is that you make the audience more savvy by giving them more product. And that's an unfortunate... You know, so eventually you've got a quality barrier that you you, go, you can't just get away with the same old rubbish over and over again. Yes, well... Uh, <laughs> Just to kind of finish on a point of absurd point, the uh, I think we can all agree that casual viewer and hardcore fan are all going to be equally disappointed or disinterested, as the case may be, with the with the much talked about uh, Ghostbusters sequel, which may have an all female lead cast or not. Maybe we don't know. It's still in development hell, as far as I can make out. But like, well, here is a film that is going to make nobody happy. Why are you even trying? Yeah, that does seem that does seem a bit silly because to me, every time I read something about that, I go, <laughs> "You've only you've, by highlighting it, you've actually managed to bring it to the front of my head as something." That every time I see a story about that, I'm like, "That's not happening." I just like write it off. I go, "No, <laughs> you've made some news there." I I always assume it's the journalist's fault. Like they're so desperate for a story that they've just made this thing up about an all-female Ghostbusters movie. And and then, you know, the people who want to be involved in the all-female Ghostbusters movie, and you're like, yeah, that's not happening, though. It's, <laughs> you just made that up. It's just, it's not... If it ever actually started to happen, you'd be like, no, you've taken the joke a little bit too far. When it's in cinemas, you're like, these people really commit to a practical joke. Like, you're expecting to buy a ticket and walk in... And then it puts up the sort of BBFC thing, and then it goes, fooled you, and shows you something good instead, like the old Ghostbusters movie. Yes. You know, it's like, that. that's the level at which, like, it's like, yeah, this is not, this is not happening. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, like three stooges, but all women. That's my twist. Really? You know, uh, just physically. But yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things. I think there are th- certain things. I'm not aware, okay, I'm just going to say this, of a Ghostbusters fandom. Well, it's it's an 80s thing which holds a special place in a lot of people's hearts, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And a, lo- exactly. a lot of people also grew up on the cartoon, which I know you despise, but lots of lots of other people didn't as kids. I don't, I don't despise it, I just found it not really very good. I just thought it was just like, mm, meh. Yeah, but uh, it, was a, it was a bit of a franchise 
in of itself in the 80s. And, you know, it felt that the original film is extremely well remembered. And, and the second film is kind of tolerated these days. And so. the video game from a few years ago is so much better than it has any right to be. It is really the proper Ghostbusters 2. It, it's so good. <laughs> you play through that now on your PS3, are you? Uh, I have been a bit, and uh, yeah, it was. It's so good. Like the <clears throat> the joy of the fact that you actually do a bunch of Ghostbusting, and it it really worked. Like they the people. It's it's a bit like I mean it's, it's less like board games. Board games when they get a license, you can tell the difference between license where it was a company is like. What the hell are we making a video, a board game of? Versus people who go, oh, this will be great. We can do this. We can do that. Uh, what's really interesting is that the, the Firefly board game is obviously made by fans for fans. And it skates the edge of irrelevance when it comes to someone who just wants to play a decent board game. Whereas the Assassin's Creed board game has been designed to within an inch of its life. It's like... Like, even if you didn't want to play the video game and you didn't care, that is one great board game. It is so good. And it's like the, the people who did it obviously had a passion for it. Video games, sometimes time conspires against them. Now, obviously, I don't think that was the point. I think that's why Ghostbusters is such a good li- licensed game. Because time, they could hardly have had less time to be timely than with Ghostbusters, the video game, for the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. You know, uh, yeah, we're like 21 years late, but hey-ho. Um, and and because of that, they went, right, we'll just make a game then and we'll put it out when it's ready. Uh, sort of the reverse of the E.T. thing, you know. <laughs> so the development team were like, we could really do something with this. And when you do the thing with the streams and you put them in the air and then you toss the trap onto the floor, the whole thing has this thing which only video games can have with the visceral, you feel like you're doing it. And that's what, you know, even though it's slightly repetitive, how bored can you get of catching a ghost in a proton stream and then trapping it inside the arc of a trap thing? It's so good. Well, they've really polished that. I think I think I'm going to come to my final point, my closing point, as it were. I think when it comes to merchandising, it is entirely the fans you pander to. They're the ones that are going to pony up significant amount of money for things. So uh, this is you know, for your books, your audio CDs, your interactive computer games, whatever action figures of all varieties, collectible or for those are supposed to be played by with children, uh, go to town on that. That is entirely the fans' uh, domain. Well, when it comes to the primary product on film or on television, and those two particular mediums in particular, uh, I think uh, you do have a duty of care to the casual viewer who you must always entice to come in and stay and join the party. And the fans want to come along for the ride. That's just brilliant. In the day, I think it's the average punter probably counts for a lot more in terms of popular consciousness. Yes, I, d- I mean that's that's a, a perfect. I mean, the one sad thing about that, and it kind of brings us around full circle back to the beginning again, is that if merchandise happens to be made like the Assassin's Creed board game or Ghostbusters the video game from a few years ago, and then they want something for a mass audience again, these things are the things that people bemoan have been cast aside. Whereas all the shovelware stuff is like, yeah, I don't really care about that. 
So, yeah, that that is a, an issue, is that when you do... I mean, again, and it's essentially the Assassin's Creed board game and, the Ghost, of course, Ghostbusters video game having original voice talent and all that, they're all official stuff. Yeah, it's all it's supposed to be there, you know, but they're still in the same re- realm as fan fiction. The people who made those, if it becomes convenient to the film studio or whatever to cast it aside... They just will. So, yeah, making derivative products seems to be a bit of a... I hope we haven't put anyone off. If people want to bemoan the fact we've put them off now, creating derivative works of the thing that they love, where might they go to do that, Ian? Well, one place they could go to complain that this is the worst episode ever of Revenge of the 80s Kids would be our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. And that's 80s as in numbers, so 80s. Uh, please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. Uh, but podcasts are what it's all about. And for those who want to point your web browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S, kids.podomatic.com please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download your PC for fanish reasons of your own uh, but this is only where our most recent podcast can be found for the legacy of our podcasts you must go to yes to find the 80s kids extended universe which may be declared not canon at the stroke of a pen uh, you can go to leostableford.blogspot.com or leostableford.com if you're not into typing the word blogspot. Uh, and who is, honestly? And yes, there you'll be able to find a full archive of uh, iffy things within the canon. And if you want to find uh, a bunch of fan art uh, re- regarding uh, Revenge of the 80s Kids, then you could go to Justin Wyatt d.deviantart.com, where you will find drawings which may or may not be related to the Revenge of the 80s kids. Your mileage may vary. Uh, But for now, uh, we seem to have uh, uh, had a big, long pontificate about the nature of of fandom, and therefore that means that we ourselves are probably fans, and it's probably terminal. So uh, (laughs) we're going to go away and commiserate with ourselves by playing with our... our, uh, action figures and other stuff such as that uh, so for now bye bye i read that goodbye 10 out of 10 bye